Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Equal Play. And you know what? Thank you for supporting this podcast. If you've subscribed, if you've downloaded, if you've listened to, you know, just one episode, if you've shared with your friends and family, I appreciate you. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed recording these conversations. And this week is no exception. With all the NBA news, who better to have a one-on-one conversation with than one of the league's brightest coaching stars, Jenny Busick, assistant coach with the Dallas Mavericks. That conversation is coming up shortly, but you know how we do things here. First, I got to hit you with some headlines. The NBA draft was this week, and after a few rumors swirled, the Bulls ended up keeping the number four pick and selecting forward Patrick Williams. He's a combo forward with a great defensive mind. His offensive game is still coming along, though. He's the second youngest player in the draft, but scouts feel he has a game that will grow to match his physical stature. That is league ready. You can read more about Williams, including his close friendship with Kobe White and other draft news at thesuntimes.com slash sports for more from our very own Joe Cowley. Up next, the Cubs had some breaking news this week, and if you didn't already hear, most likely you were living under a rock. The team announced the departure of President of Baseball Operations Theo Epstein, and GM Jed Hoyer will be replacing him. During his end-of-the-season news conference last month, Epstein wasn't shy about the potential that he and the Cubs could possibly go their separate ways. He decided now was the right time to make that move. Under his leadership, though, and we, we have to give props to this man, the Cubs won 705 games and lost 651 with five postseason appearances, including three trips to the National League Championship Series and, of course, the iconic 2016 World Series title. No matter who you were a fan of, that World Series title was felt across the baseball sphere. And fans, again, from all different teams, donning all different jerseys, I think, tipped their hat to the Chicago Cubs and them finally bringing a World Series title back to the north side. I mean, all fans except maybe excluding the south side faithful and the diehard White Sox fans out there. But that's neither here nor there. Theo went on the record to say, for the rest of my life, I will cherish having been a part of the great Chicago Cubs organization during this historic period. You can read his full quote at the chicagosuntimes.com slash Cubs and all the stories that will, of course, follow this breaking news. 
Lastly, but certainly not least, we've got some U.S. Women's National Team news, the best kind in my personal opinion. The 23-player roster was announced for the upcoming training camp ahead of the team's final match of the year, a rematch of the World Cup final against the Netherlands. But this roster looks significantly different than that one did. There are a lot of new faces and a few prominent faces missing, including captains Carly Lloyd and Megan Rapinoe. Vlako Anonofsky said earlier in the week during a call with the media that Lloyd is recovering from a surgery while Rapino has not been training in a team environment. So physically, she just wouldn't be ready for this camp. Both are expected to be at camp in January in preparation for the Olympics, he said. In total, though, there are nine players on this roster with less than 20 caps with the U.S. Women's National Team and four with zero caps. You can read more about the U.S. Women's National Team at thesuntimes.com soccer, and be sure to pick up a copy of your Chicago Sun-Times Sports Saturday. There's a ton of news this week, I mean, as always, and who doesn't love reading from a physical newspaper? You know, grab your coffee, grab that paper with your mask on, of course, sit down and enjoy that physical paper in your hands. I promise you won't regret it. All right, I'm done wasting your time. Here's the conversation you really came to this podcast for. Jenny Busick, assistant coach of the Dallas Mavericks. Jenny Busick, assistant coach for the Dallas Mavericks. Thank you so much for joining us on Equal Play this week. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you. Wow, such an honor to have you on. Your, your resume speaks for itself. Everything you've accomplished in your career is beyond impressive. And I really want to start things off at the very beginning or, or in college, I guess we'll say. Um, you were a four-year starter at the University of Virginia from 92 to 96, and you helped lead your team to four ACC championships, regular season ACC championships, and three Elite Eight appearance, appearances. And obviously winning on that level, I'm sure teaches you so much about life and helped prepare you for the next stage in your career. But I'm really curious what losing on that level teaches you. One, about yourself and also in preparation for the next level in your career. Well, I, you know, interesting, um, the WNBA wasn't around, obviously, at that mm -hmm. time. So some people may or may not know that. So um, my playing career, college, collegiate career ended in 96, as you mentioned, and the WNBA did not begin until the summer of 1997. And so for those of us of that generation, you know, college basketball for women was it. And winning a national championship, um, going to the final four, like that was the pinnacle of your career as a female basketball player. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that was the ultimate goal. And, um, I think I can, I can pretty honestly say that reaching the elite eight three times, a sweet 16, the other time, but those lead eights, we lost all three times by a basket to go to the final four, one possession, um, including my senior year where we blew an 18 point lead to the, the eventual champions. And, um, and it was devastating. I think you don't realize when you're a high level athlete, um, you don't realize how much of a part of you being an athlete becomes, mm -hmm. even if you're a well-rounded person, I was a good student. I had lots of friends. I have a good family. I had a lot of, um, career aspirations that were not even involving, 
uh, playing basketball. I wanted to go to med school. And so right. even being like, quote unquote, well-rounded, I had no idea when that last buzzer sounded um, and we came up short in my eyes, just how devastating that would be. And just what a grieving process and what a dying process to that part of myself and my identity it would be. I'm not exaggerating to tell you when we lost that last game, um, I didn't get up off the locker room floor. I was face down in the prone position with my shoelaces tied and my shirt tucked in until two o'clock in the morning when, uh, and I was still there when my mom finally called my college coach who lived like 20 minutes away and said, Debbie, you've got to go get my daughter. She's still not home. I think she's still at the gym. And Debbie drove back in town and picked me up off the floor and drove me home with my uniform still on. And, um, and I went through like a six month depression, lost about 20 pounds and I didn't have 20 pounds to lose. And I mean, it really was like a grieving process. So I learned a lot. Um, you know, that was my first real failure probably like where I had not been able to just set my mind to something, work really hard and find a way to, to make it happen. So it was my first time experiencing real failure not, not reaching the final four, not winning a championship when, when it was in, within reach. And then just learning how much, not just for myself, but for all high-level athletes, how much of an identity, part of your identity it becomes. And just developing a huge empathy for athletes at the end of their career and that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and being there for these athletes at the end of their career, whether it ends in, by their choice or not, um, no matter how long your career, short it is, there's a, there's a really tough process waiting for all of us. And so just having an understanding from experiencing that has now become something that I'm very passionate about. Well, that's beautiful. And it's also beautiful to see the investment being made into athletes and their mental health, because we have, have never seen it to the degree that we're seeing it now. And as we all know, athletes are just humans too. And mental health is just another aspect of our health. And it's important to take care of and nourish. So it's great to hear that, you know, that's a huge part of your life as a coach and, and has been in your career. You know, you talked about at the time the WNBA didn't exist. So the highest, the, the pinnacle to women then was winning an, an NCAA championship. Can you explain what it felt like to have this passion as you described, but know that there was no future beyond college in it? We didn't know any different. You know, we didn't know any different. So you, you know, you're, you just, that was your paradigm was this was the the pinnacle and all female athletes, you know, had aspirations to graduate and had, um, and had something else that they were aspiring to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few that were going overseas at that time, but not not a not a not a high percentage like there there has been the last couple of decades. And so it was just a given. Like, and I think there was there was a different mentality about your college career, obviously, because it wasn't to to get you to the pros. It wasn't to get exposure. It wasn't um, so that that you would look good in the scout in the professional ranks in the WNBA coaches scouts eyes, it was, it was all about your team winning. Cause this was it. And so the game was a little bit more pure. And in that way, um, I'm thankful that I, that I grew up in that era because 
it was all about winning and it was all about team and it was all about all the things that sports are supposed to be about. So I'm very thankful that, that I got to experience that beauty. You mentioned that you had goals of going to medical school before the WNBA was established and then you had a tryout offer with the Cleveland Rockers. Can you talk me through that moment in your life, in your career, how that all unfolded and what it was like going through that process? Well, I had a fifth year of my, I had a double major. Um, It was a a double major of sports medicine and sports management. Uh And it was a a major that they allowed me to basically create. It wasn't an established major. And when I proposed it to the, the three different parts of our university that were involved, the education school, the business school, the arts and science school, and I had to sell it basically to all the deans, you know, that this was, I wanted to have a fifth year that would be paid for. And this is why, and what the curriculum would be and the purpose of this major, blah, blah, blah. And the fifth year was going to be some classes, but majority internships, because as a student athlete, one of the things we don't get to do is intern. Right. And so when you're trying to figure out career choice, you know, the best way to know what you want to do really is not in theory, it's trying stuff out. And, uh, and so athletes don't get to do that because we have a full-time job in school. And so all the other students are doing internships through high school, through college and trying things out and getting a feel for what they're, they like and what they feel drawn to. And we don't get to do that. So I just set this major up to where my fifth year would be six internships, uh, within our university and, um, three a semester. And so I was doing that. And, and like I said, I was also going through this grieving process of dying literally to, a big part of my identity being as a, as a basketball player now and an athlete. Um, and so it was a, a morbid time, I would say very difficult time. Um, but I was on the other side of that and I had really was on the upswing of healing from that and, and re, you know, becoming reborn with a different wholeness, um, that wasn't dependent on being an athlete. And then, the, the WNBA is rumored to begin. And, you know, I'm just starting to come out of this funk and get excited about what's next and try to figure out exactly what that's going to look like. Yeah, go How ahead. How did you hear that rumor? Like when you say rumor to begin, what was, what was the rumor? What was the buzz? Yeah, the, it was, yeah, it was, you know, for me, like I said, I, I was kind of out of, I was in the dark on it, but agents were starting to call, um, former teammates of mine were starting to sign contracts. Um, there were several drafts before the league started to allocate players because we had a backlog of 20 years of players from all right. over the world that were now um, entering into the WNBA and the ABL, which was a competing league at that time that started around the same time. And so there was all these allocating drafts and um, allocating players different ways and so it was just starting to become real like it went from surreal to like maybe this the NBA might start a women's league to like wow now they're drafting players now there's they've got team names and it just started to take shape and you realize like this is this is actually going to happen and so I hadn't touched a ball in eight months um but with about a month to go um, and I got asked to try out for a couple teams. I'm like, you know what? I thought this was over, but I would really regret it if I don't at least try, you right. know, this is like, seems very historic. And so it was really cool. Cause this is one of the other things I really learned was once I died to that being like a need, 
um, because it had been such so much of my identity. And when something becomes your identity, you need it to feel good about yourself. You need it for your confidence. You need it for your self-esteem. You need it for your identity. I, since I had now died to that, going back and competing again after that, that gap being filled was not out of need anymore, needing to make a team, needing to be successful, needing, you know, anybody's approval, but it was that now a rebirth of the joy and the love of the game Mm -hmm. with no need, no expectations. If I hadn't made a team, I wouldn't have cared. I was just loving the game again in a way that I hadn't in a while, loving competing again and just thrilled for every drill, every competition, every cut that you know you were making it just didn't feel like pressure it was like this is just fun again and then I turned out you make a team and so I learned a lot at that point just about um you know us all having a certain perspective that gives us actually like it's counterintuitive but gives us the best chance of reaching our highest version of ourselves and reaching the highest level of success but it can't be fear-based or Mm need-based it must be passion-based love-based um, purpose-based. And so I've really tried to learn how to apply that now in my life and help my athletes and other people, as I, I do a lot of speaking engagements, really understand about this um, growth mindset and journey mindset, as opposed to performance results, mm-hmm. fear mindset that most of us live with. And if we're not careful, most of us can slip back into that at any point um, and, and get trapped there. Yeah, that's, that's such a beautiful point. And I actually just spoke to my alma mater today and students. And that was something I said to them. I'm like, you have to be in this business because you love it and you're passionate about it. And not because, you know, you're looking for acknowledgement or, you know, whatever else that, that feeds your ego. It truly has to be because of your passion. And I think we all learn that at a different space in our life, but for that to be, you know, a cornerstone of your coaching is, is really a beautiful thing. And, you know, we, we just brought up the inaugural season of the WNBA. What did it mean to you to be part of that inaugural season? And also what, what was that inaugural season like? Yeah. I mean, I tell this story a lot. It's like, you know, I was a young woman and riding the wave of title nine, Title IX was like 1972, 1973. I was born in 1973. Uh So I was really like fortunate and blessed to come behind a lot of people who've been through a lot of pain, a lot of women, um, so that I had opportunities to not feel things as much, although I still was the generation where where we were still feeling a lot of that. We still are. I mean, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go when it comes to gender equity. Um, but I will say that I had, I, that I was riding that title nine wave and, and, uh, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, but it was being a part of that inaugural season that changed the course of my life. Um, like I mentioned, I would plan to go to med school and there was a lot of purpose in that. And I was very passionate about, you know, helping people in that way and giving back to the world in that way. But being part of the inaugural season where we're going into NBA arenas and you look up into the stands and there's grown women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s in tears. Grown women in tears because they were seeing what we were doing represent the battles that they had fought or the injustices or the discriminations or just the 
the uh, the condemnation, you know, whatever it is that their experience had been as a female, not getting to do things just because they were a female. Mm-hmm. And what that represented to them was very emotional for a lot of women to look up into the stands and see young girls, like almost looking confused to see women doing something that their whole lives, they'd only seen men do. Mm-hmm. And in like just their eyes opening and their brains and their minds opening about like, wow, like this is just blowing their minds, you know? And then to see young boys at our games with our jerseys on, wanting our autographs, their parents telling me that they're in the backyard pretending like they're Cheryl Swoops and Lisa Leslie. And it's like, this is a a whole generation of young boys now that's going to be raised with a different respect for women. Right. And that's going to matter in their marriages. That's going to matter as, in, as their fathers, as their, as their husbands. And so it just felt like it was just like in our face how much this league mattered. Mm-hmm. What a difference maker this league could be and how much potential and purpose this league had, how important it was. And so that's when in my, my mind, I'm like, I'm not ready to go to med school or do anything else even though I got hurt playing, I want to do anything that I can to help this league succeed, um, survive, first of all, and then succeed and ultimately reach its potential, which we're still working on. But it just felt very important, not just for our country, not just for women, but for, for the world, mm-hmm. you know, in, in how it changed paradigms and represented opportunities. You know, I remember being a young girl, like three, four years old, you know, and, and everybody's starting to ask you already, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. You want to be. And, uh, and I remember telling everybody a boy <laughs> and this was not a gender issue in my small mind at that time, I'd only saw men or boys having choices. I saw women having make a, maybe a couple choices. Oh, you could be a teacher. You could be a nurse. But that was about it. And if you were a boy, you had choices of fireman, athlete, coach, doctor, astronaut, you name it. And so in my small mind at that time, I wanted to be a boy because I just wanted to have the same choices. Right. And so that's coming full circle now when I'm a part of the inaugural season, like this matters. That is a powerful statement right there. And I think that speaks to the power in the fact that if you can't see it, you can't be it. And we're seeing that change drastically right now. The WNBA from day one has set the standard, has been a pioneer in advocating for equality, equity across all platforms. Why do you think the WNBA was and its players always had that in mind? Was it because as women, you all knew what, you know, the fight that you were up against just in order to follow your dream? Or why, why has that always been a cornerstone and a foundational point that the WNBA was built on? You know, I can only speculate and theorize on that. Um, You know, I have to say, first and foremost, the vision of David Stern um, as a white male to have the vision and passion. Um, and he got a lot of criticism for the WNBA. Um, but he was our biggest advocate. And without him, there's no way this league would be in existence. 
how he had that vision and why he cared that much about this, I don't know. Um, but, you know, that vision had been implanted in him. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a big part of his legacy. He, he was a great leader and great commissioner in the NBA, but a big part of his legacy for what he's, is what he's done for women's sports and women uh, in general. And then I do think our league is made up of minority. Mm-hmm. It's made up of, of people that don't necessarily, you know, swim in mainstream. Um, you know, it's a lot of African-American women, women from other countries, um, some countries where it's way less equitable than it is in the United States. Um, there's, you know, people of all different religions. I've coached players from all different religions, sexual orientations. And so I think because it's not necessarily, I'm not, we're not working with, and we aren't women in the WNBA that are just typical Mm -hmm. and normal. I think all of us have experienced different discriminations and just like the challenges of, of not being normal. I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think we all recognize that it's a beautiful thing, but we've also all experienced pain because of it. Um, and now we're all because of our experiences more passionate than ever about the value and the importance of diversity. Right. Um, and fighting for opportunities for, for diversity, because we believe that it's, it's a beautiful thing and it's powerful and it's right. And it makes every, every community and every group better. When you got injured, how did your dream shift to then transition you into this longstanding coaching career that you are still on right now? It was because of the, the, the purpose and the potential of the WNBA. Um, I wasn't ready. I didn't want to just coach. First of all, I'd never thought about coaching, but when it, my playing career ended early, um, and then, and the, the real self exploration of what's next and is it time for med school? The, the thing that had my heart had been gripped by the importance of the WNBA. And I wanted to be a part of this league surviving and succeeding. Um, and I also wanted, I, I, because I'd been in the locker room and I, and these women were such phenomenal women. I mean, just overcomers, you know, beyond belief, like there could be movies made about so many of these women. I became very passionate about this group of women and not just the league in general, like I've mentioned, but just this group of women having the best experience possible in this career of playing in the WNBA and being the best resource I could be for these women who were often overlooked um, and had often been overlooked. So I became passionate about whatever that be, may be as a resource, X's and O's, player development, mental health, um, addiction issues, like, you know, anything that a lot, you know, maybe there's women who've been abused as children, maybe that experienced abortions. I just tried to be like a frontline support and resource, whether it be on the court, off the court, somebody they could trust, a safe place they could have, um, and just a great resource for these women. That was my, my passion. Mm-hmm. And so it just overtook me. And I didn't plan on coaching. I didn't plan on coaching this long, but the, it's the women of the league and how phenomenal they are, and the purpose of the league at large um, really, like I said, captured my heart. Can you imagine your life being any different? Can you imagine your life had you gone down the, the path of medical school? 
Yeah, in a way, actually, I can. I think okay. um, I think I would have loved that too. But um, and I've reevaluated many times. You know, I I think it's important that we all, no matter how far up the ladder you get, or along how far along you get in your career path, and how successful you are, we should always be reevaluating: is this still um, the right fit and what I'm meant to be doing? Because we change and circumstances change. So I'm constantly reevaluating, even now, like. Am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And it's funny because my dad, who's a doctor, every time there's a break in the action, he's like, are you going to med school now? I mean, I'm like, dad, I'm in my 40s, you know, and he's just sure at some point I'm going to get back on that, that path. But so far I haven't, but you never know. I could be in my 60s and going back to med school. Hey, there's, there's no timeline on success. There's no timeline <laughs> on your journey. Your journey is your journey. And I think that's, that's right. That's a beautiful key, um, key to life and key to success is just, you know, following what feels right when it feels right. Um, your coaching career has obviously taken you through many stops, but one very influential stop, I assume, was the Seattle Storm. You accomplished a lot there. Um, we're part of two championship seasons in 2004 and 2010. Did those championships at all make up for the pain you felt in college? And second part to that question, just what did it mean to you to be a part of those seasons? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think um, I would have to say that, um, I mean, championships are always fun. But I lear- I've learned, now, you know, now after being in this so long that it's not actually the thing that's the most rewarding. Mm -hmm. And there's been other seasons that I've coached that have been just as rewarding or more rewarding for everybody involved than the championship years. Um, One of the championship years I would say was pretty, pretty epic. The other one was, was if you talk to a lot of us that were a part of that one, it was a challenging year. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any of us had any idea we were going to win a championship that year. It wasn't one of those years where it just felt like magic from the beginning. Um, and there was a lot of drama. There wasn't, it wasn't like a team that had the best chemistry of any team I'd ever been a part of. And it wasn't one of my most enjoyable seasons. So I've learned, you know, again, just a life lesson that um, that's not really where the sweetness is. You know, it can be a beautiful thing if that's what comes of it, but the beauty really comes in doing things the right way with other people who are doing it the right way and the experience all the way along. And then if you end up reaching the ultimate, then it's a bonus. But if you don't, it's, it's just as rewarding and fulfilling. Um, it, those things are not always hand in hand, right. if, I, if I'm saying it well. So focusing on the things that matter, doing things the right way, the things that make things a great experience, um, especially collaboratively. And then if you get the reward, you get it. I think it gives you the best chance of getting it, but some of that's out of your control. Absolutely. I actually love that you just brought that up because I think to a lot of people when from the outside, from an outside perspective, people who maybe haven't played a team sport or haven't ever coached, all of these different factors don't fully understand that a championship is accomplished in a multitude of ways. And, and one team's way of accomplishing it is not going to match another team's. So to that point, can you describe how different the two championship teams were, but they ultimately reached the same or accomplished the same goal? Yeah. I mean, I will, I will, 
tell you about those two championship teams, but I will say too, like in the, some of those other seasons that I'm referring to that were just as rewarding or more so, you know, I always share with my teams, um, you have to be a champion before you win a championship. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was uh, asked to, to lead the rebuild in 2015 in Seattle and our right. team the year before I took over the rebuild had finished in last place in the WNBA. And we put together a plan um, to get back into championship contention within five years, mm-hmm. which is very ambitious. There are many franchises in the WNBA that have never won one. Right. And we set out this plan to win championships within five years. Well, that team that started a rebuild in 2015 won a championship in 2018 and won another one in 2020. Mm-hmm. So we accomplished that goal. But our, our way of doing that was we are going to be champions before we win a championship, if that makes sense. And teaching players and bringing in players who will buy into being a champion way before you win championships. So we had champions on that team when we were finishing, not even making the playoffs. We had champions on that team when we were getting beat in the first round. Mm -hmm. But that set that franchise up when the talent came and and the players grew and, and matured and had more time together to now be a championship team, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, the two championships that we did win when I was there um, were very different in terms of strengths. And you do learn there's many different ways to skin a cat. Um, the one we won in 2004 was all offense, no defense. And, but the, the, and the, the team in 2010 was very much defensive players. Mm-hmm. Um, and we won it with a, with a more a grittier team. But the thing about those two teams that they had in common, and I would argue that any championship team has this, is both teams had an identity that was true to who they really were. It was the actual uh, identity and perceived were aligned, Mm -hmm. okay? And that's when you have maximal confidence and maximal performance. We knew who we were, we knew who we were not, and we maxed out our, our true identity, and so you can be successful in life looking a lot of different ways, especially if your definition of success is what we're talking about, being your best version of yourself, doing things the right way every day, staying in the moment, you know, and, uh, and staying true to who you actually are um, and, and being okay with who you're not. Right. You know, and that to me defines success and it gives you the best chance of the world's definition of success. Absolutely. I think that's such a great point to make and and is transferable across all different industries that one, you have to have the mindset and the belief that you're a champion before you even reach the championship or or become a champion. You have to already, you know, be operating as if you are. And two, you know, everyone's version of success is different and everyone's way of reaching it is different and you have to remain true to yourself. Absolutely. Well said. (laughs) So I do a little self-reflection from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) That was very well said. Better than I said it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you said it great. But when you saw the Storm then win their second two championships, what sense of pride did you have in watching them accomplish that, knowing that you played, you know, a pivotal role in it? Oh, I mean, super, super proud. Not not in a, in a, a me way, but just 
you know, it's as a coach, you want to be part of something that's right. And you want to try to set, a, uh, establish a culture um, and teach and cultivate and reinforce what is right. And I think that if you're a really good teacher, um, then eventually your students don't need you anymore mm-hmm. because they've learned to such a degree and they have such an understanding that they don't need you anymore. So the greatest coaches I've ever been around, by the time the games come around, they're not having to do a whole lot. By the end of the season, they're not having to do a whole lot because they've taught in such a way at such a depth of where the players are grasping the understanding and how to connect things and assimilate things and problem solve things and communicate amongst themselves. Um, and they have a resilience amongst themselves where whether you're there or not, it's good. That thing's going to keep on going. And so that was very rewarding because I wasn't there when they won the championship in 2018 or 2020, but you saw all the things that we, we built foundationally um, just come into fruition and they didn't need me anymore. I mean, man, the 2020 championship, this watching them win that was, was super fun. I got to say as a fan this season, the WMA mm-hmm. did a beautiful job with, you know, attacking COVID and watching the storm when it was, was thrilling for a fan. You've been surrounded by a coalition of powerful women in sports from the very beginning of your career, I assume from, from day one, even when you were probably a child, I assume. But what have those relationships meant to your success in the business and also just from a personal standpoint? Yeah, you know, I, I come from a family of a lot of strong women um, grandmothers that, that were highly educated. Um, and that's, you know, a long, long time ago now they would be in their 100, they would be a hundred something years old and they were getting advanced degrees. And I think that says a lot about the women in my family, but I also think it says a lot about the men in my family Mm -hmm. because, you know, my grandfather, my grandfathers, both of them, they wanted to marry. And this was a long time ago. This was like generations when women weren't even going to college they were looking for smart women. They were looking for women with a, with a, an opinion about things. They were yeah. looking for women that weren't the norm back then. And so that was like, it's not about like just the women, but anytime you're in a minority and you're looking to advance, we need the alliance of the majority. Mm-hmm. And I, and I say that it, I've seen it in my family and it's been my experience, you know, even professionally, um, there's been a lot of women who've been extremely influential in my life, great role models, showing me how to lead, not like a man, but like a woman. And it's different. Showing me how to handle with grace and class, um, you know, not always being accepted. And what are the battles that you pick and choose and, and, uh, and why? You know, how do you navigate some of this? And, um, and so I've had a, some incredible female role models in my family. And then Pat Summit would be at the top of the list growing up in Tennessee. Um, but I also have to always mention the advocates and the allies that I've had that are, that are the majority, which, is, which are the men in my life that have, without them saying, like a Rick Carlisle, mm-hmm. um, no, she can coach in the NBA. And he was saying that 10 years ago. Jenny Busick can coach in the NBA. She can lead men. That was 10 years ago, way before the league was ready for it. But it's visionaries like David Stern and, and a lot of men that I've experienced in my lifetime who, uh, who fight for us 
and say and do things that we could never do without them. Right. And, uh, and so I'm very grateful for those men. You know, that's a great point. And I think sometimes, I mean, I think we get, we give men acknowledgement, but it is important to acknowledge our allies because you're right. It, it's, there's power in our female coalition, our, our women, our, our group of women that we, you know, grow with, but it, it get, you get to a point where it becomes impossible if you don't have your allies with you as well. So that's, that's a great point. You were the third woman hired in the NBA when you became a player development coach with the Sacramento Kings. I've spoken to a lot of women who are pioneers like yourself and a common uh, message that is often expressed is that you don't set out to be a pioneer and then all of a sudden it, it happens. So for you personally, when you broke into the league, did you think that that you were going to be a first that did you think that one day you'd be the first woman for assistant coach for the Dallas Mavericks? Did you think about these things or were you just focused on your craft and it led you there? Totally just focus on my craft. Um, but I will say, you know, cause when I started coaching in the NBA, there was only one other female doing that Becky Hammond mm-hmm. and she was in San Antonio and there was a lot of chatter Um, and some of it got back to me that this wasn't going to work anywhere, but San Antonio, because San Antonio had an insulated situation, kind of a Disney world situation, but females coaching in the NBA wasn't, wasn't going to work anywhere else. And so while I was not looking at myself as a pioneer, I did feel the weight of the microscope and the pressure to uh, Lord willing, do well enough to where people would start to believe that this could work, mm-hmm. that women could lead men, that women could coach in the in the NBA, so that it wouldn't be so hard, you know, for for other women um, to get opportunities. And uh, and so it was not a it's not a bad pressure. It was just like you understood the magnitude and the um, that people were watching and unsure. Was there a sense at all amongst the the women like yourself, like Becky, that if you all didn't, you know, exceed expectations that the door would somehow shut behind you? I think for sure. I, I don't know if that's always conscious, but I think, um, I mean, Becky's a good friend of mine. So for sure, we, we've talked about this, like, um, you know, we're representing a lot of women. Mm-hmm. We're representing all women in some ways. And we want to make all women proud. We want to represent women in a way that makes every woman proud um, and doesn't give any excuse or reason for the next woman to not get an opportunity. So yeah, I think it matters. I think there are more eyes on us. I think there are people that don't necessarily want this to work because it's a competitive, it's a competitive league. Mm -hmm. Um, There's still, you know, preconceived notions and stereotypes and, and, uh, and sexism in existence in our country and in our world. It's just the reality of what it is. So, you know, when you're trying to change opinions and paradigms, sometimes you will, sometimes you won't, but you definitely don't want to do anything to harm, harm the progress. The NBA and the players union just agreed to start the 72 game season, December 22nd. 
obviously between now and then there are still a bunch of things to take care of the draft free agency, a multitude of things, but how is the coaching staff or will the coaching staff attack this season differently if at all, and, and prepare differently for, you know, an unorthodox season? You know, we don't really know what it's going to look like yet. So um, a lot of the problem solving hasn't begun. Uh, we're still waiting from, to hear from the league, like the protocols and what the schedule will be like. And um, there's a lot of rumors floating around about, about different things. And so I think we're all kind of in a wait and see mode. Uh, once we see the stipulations, once we see the schedule, once we, then I think we'll, we'll be more in, in specific problem solving mode. But one of the things I love most about working for Rick Carlisle is, um, his mental toughness mm -hmm. is just whatever you throw at, he's like, whatever you throw at me, bring it on <laughs> and no excuses and no feeling sorry for yourself. And we're going to make the most of it. So we're kind of ready to have our hand dealt, um, and then, and then figure it out, you know, and we're work, I'm working with some brilliant minds and him, Mark Cuban, um, our coaching staff, you know, obviously the, the genius of Luka Doncic's, and so we're just kind of waiting to see what hand we get. And mm -hmm. then, then we'll, start, we'll start playing strategically from there. Yeah, the Mavericks definitely, from an outside perspective, seems like there are a lot of brilliant minds to absorb information from and learn from. Just in terms of, of the year that 2020 has been, how have you had to readjust your day-to-day, -day, your work schedule, your life to adjust to this, this do quote unquote normal that 2020 has created for all of us. I, I am very grateful that I have uh, a two-year-old daughter, which a lot of people know my story has been public. I'm a single mother. Um, and the thing that it, the reason why that's been in, an extra special blessing during this, this pandemic is it keeps me in the moment. And I know that that is a key for all of our lives to, to be in the moment. The more we can be in the moment, the more we are quote unquote, what athletes call in the zone. Mm -hmm. When you're not worried about the future, you're not regretting the past or, you know, perseverating over the past. But I think during the pandemic, that's been especially challenging for, for all of us for a lot of very good reasons. Um, because there are so many unknowns that are coming along with this. And so to have the gift of a young child who lives life in the moment and get to experience life through her eyes has kept me, I think, as mentally healthy as I could possibly be because we're in the moment. You know, you bring up being a mother and you were quoted in an ESPN article talking about having to confront that, that question of if it came down to coaching or having a child, you knew if you had to choose, you were ready to make that choice to, to have a child. Why did you force yourself to confront that question? Why did you feel like you had to confront that question? Well, I'm still confronting that question, to be honest with you. Um, that question hasn't left you know, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to do both, to be honest, and do both well, which is my standard. Um, I've been very fortunate that the Mavericks have been willing to work with me um, and accommodate 
you know, this and so that I can do both and, and have time with my daughter and still get to coach. But it's not, I don't take it for granted that, that at some point the, they may um, require more from me than, than I'm willing to give um, from my daughter, you know, and that would be reasonable for them to do it. But like I said, I'm very thankful. I think I speak for a lot of, of women um, and I meet a lot of women just because my story has been so public and I hear from a lot of women who either are trying to decide their career path and already factoring in how that's going to fit with being a mother and they're, they're steering away from certain careers because they see it as mutually exclusive and probably in, in many cases they're right or they're climbing the ladder and they get to what they perceive to be a crossroads from either a future child or a current child. Um, and there's a lot of dilemmas that we as working women face a lot of tension, a lot of mom guilt, a lot of, um, choices that I don't necessarily think men have to make. Mm -hmm. And, um, they just have a different role even biologically in their, in their children's lives. So I think it's what the Mavericks are doing is, is challenging a lot of people's way of thinking um, within our organization, within the NBA, but also hopefully corporations all around our country is, are we doing all that we need to do? Do we care enough about this pool of talent, meaning females um, where we're, we're, we would be willing to hear their needs. It would be like if we were, if I was in a wheelchair and I'm working for a company and they say, Oh yeah, no, we welcome we welcome people with disabilities, but there's no ramps in the building. Right. And that happens a lot with, with females with, that are mothers. It's like, oh, yeah, no, we welcome females. We, but then there's no ramps. So we end up eliminating ourselves mm -hmm. from certain careers or certain levels of, of the career path. Because while they may say they're welcoming, um, there's not accommodations mm -hmm. to make it to where we can do both. You're absolutely right. And I'm so grateful that you just mentioned all of that. And we're so open all about all of that because women are, are too often forced to make that decision between career and family or career and having a child or even being a single mother. And, and can I be a single mother and also have a career? So I want to get rid of that notion and I want to do it by asking you, how has being a mother made you better at your job? We, you know, we talked earlier about as an athlete, um, you're not going to reach your highest level with a fear of failure or if your identity is entirely in it because now it becomes need-based and need-driven. And I think when you have a child, um, you know, it, it does eliminate a lot of those, those things because your identity is now no longer just in work. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have a lot of your your – heart going out in a, in a reciprocal way to something else. And there's another part of you that comes alive. And so it kind of takes the pressure off in some ways, um, work things that used to feel like a big deal, just aren't as big a deal anymore. And the need for maybe approval or this, that, and the other, it just, it, everything takes on a different perspective. And I think it just gives you a healthier overview and perspective of yourself and of life um, and, and overall just better health. 
<laughs> you know? And so when we're healthier and we're more balanced, I think we're better at everything that we're doing. Definitely. I think that that is perfectly said. Um, you know, wrapping up here, it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when, when we talk about a woman being a head coach in the NBA, why not now though? Because we're still waiting to see it happen. And, and there are multiple candidates who have proven are capable of, of this position. So why not now? And when do you think that will be something we see happen? It's a very competitive business. And there, you know, I know some, some NBA assistant coaches that are men that have been in the league 20 years and very qualified and have never gotten an opportunity. So it's very difficult <laughs> to get a head coaching job. And that's regardless of, of race, gender, age, experience. It's just hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say that first and foremost. Um, but I, I think it's not a matter of, of you know, why, why, you know, when it's, it's just a, a matter of, of, sorry, not a matter of if it's, it is just a matter of when, and it's like anything else in life. Like you're looking to meet a husband and it feels like it's taken forever. And then it's like one conversation in the grocery store and you meet your husband, you know, you want a job so bad and you're applying all over the place for months. And then it's one phone call and your life changes forever. And, and that's just kind of how these things work. So it's going to take one organization just feeling like it's the right fit for them and it's done. And so we don't know when that's going to be. And I think it is important that it's the right woman in the right situation because of some of the things we've mentioned. It needs to go well. Yeah. You know, it it needs to go well. Um, And so I would rather us as women be patient and it be the right woman in the right place in the right situation and it go well than force or rush and it it not go well and set us us back. So I'm in faith um, about it. And I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm trusting that when it's the right time, right place, right woman, um, it's going to happen. And no doubt it's going to work. You know, I have to ask then, I know she's your friend, but Becky is obviously the, just at the top of everyone's conversations. And from a journalistic standpoint, she is in every conversation, every article that we read about the, the woman who's, who's going to make that happen. So do you believe Becky will be the first woman to coach, to be a head coach in the NBA? Uh, I think, I think that you could argue that, that that makes a lot of sense. I think she's absolutely ready and will do a phenomenal job. Uh Um, But again, it's, it's getting in the right situation. You could take Pat Riley or Popovich or Rick Carlisle and you don't put them in a good situation and they're not going to do very well either. So um, you know, I hope for Becky, if, if she is the first, that it's a good situation that gives her a chance, her best chance of success. But there's a lot of qualified women out there and, and yeah. she has a big name and she's definitely qualified. And I hope she gets the first opportunity because she's um, sacrificed a lot to so that we have these opportunities that I have this opportunity. Um, but I will I don't want to disrespect. There's a lot of other women out there that that are qualified. Absolutely. There are countless other women who are out there and qualified very much. So my last question for you is this, what do you hope the future for women in sports is and looks like? Um, I tend to, I tend to say this a lot and I'll say it in the coaching context, but I think it goes for everything. I think as a minority 
um, specifically as a female in the NBA, you know, I never wanted to get a job because I was a female. And, and that there's pressure for that right now, you know, with the political climate that we have. Um, I don't want to get a job because I'm a female. I don't want to get an interview because I'm a female. All I ask and hope for is that I and other females or minorities would not not get an interview mm-hmm. or a job because they're a female or a minority. So I don't want to get a job because I'm a female, but I don't want to not get a job because I'm a female. Mm-hmm. You know, I coached for a long time and the, you weren't even getting an interview only because you were a female. And we, that's what I hope for the future. And you fill in the blank. I don't want any woman to get a job or an opportunity doing X, Y, or Z fill in the blank because they're a female. I think that's disrespectful, mm-hmm. but I don't want them to not get an opportunity because they're a female. And when we get to that point where just because you're a minority, I mean, you're not going to get eliminated. Then I think the talent, your talent will, will speak for itself. That is a beautiful sentiment to end on and, and, and so true. We, we don't want special treatment and we don't want to be passed up. We just want a fair shot at our dreams and our goals. And I think that is, you know, all any woman could ever ask for in any industry. So Jenny, man, I thank you so much for this time. You've, you've provided so much insight in multiple industries and, you know, our listeners will learn a lot from this conversation. So thank you again so much for making this time. 